I've said it many times before that Acts is a history book, and it's a history book that allows us to see the warts in the early church. And for that, I am appreciative. It does not gloss over the conflicts. It does not minimize the difficult times in the church. Acts is not a marketing ploy to get us excited about the church. It's just a real-life account of what took place. Uh, We've seen leaders in prison. We've seen disagreements from leaders. We've seen church members lying to one another. In spite of all this, God still chose to use his church. So Acts does not avoid the conflicts, but avoiding the conflicts, we have to realize, exacts attacks. Uh, New research has revealed that employees waste, on average, about $1,500 and an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation they avoid. Uh, These costs skyrocket when multiplied by the prevalence of conflict avoidance. This is all according to a study conducted by the authors of New York Times bestselling book, Crucial Conversations. In it, they said that 95% of a company's workforce struggles to speak up to their colleagues about their concerns. And as a result, they engage in a resource-sapping avoidance tactics that include ruminating excessively about crucial issues, complaining, getting angry, doing unnecessary work to avoid the people that we need to be communicating to. And in extreme cases, a company's bottom line is hit dramatically. I heard another leader speak about avoiding, and he said that insubordinate employees are not usually confronted by their employers. He estimated that 90% of employers wait too long before firing them. The point is is that people generally avoid confrontation. Now, of course, if you like confrontation, that's a problem too. I'm just talking about walking through confrontation, having those hard conversations that, that need to be had. I mean, some, I suppose, would think that you're doing the loving thing by giving in to, let's say, a non-compliant employee a second, third, fourth, fifth time. But in actuality, the most loving thing you can do, especially for others, is to confront, is to address the bad behavior. I mean, it's not love that stands by and watches the morale of the rest of an organization suffer because someone in authority refuses to address the issue. So today, we read about the tale of two men. One is hungry for the truth. Another twists the truth, and he's confronted. Let's read about it. Let's all stand as we look at Acts 13. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. 
and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Apparently, Paul and Barnabas had traveled through the, you might remember the map that we looked at a couple weeks ago on the southeastern shoreline of Cyprus to avoid the interior mountain region. And they came to Paphos, which was the official capital of Cyprus. And while there, this Antiochian mission team met a man named Bar-Jesus. He was called a magician and a false prophet. Now, his name literally means son of Jesus. But Luke presents him as a kind of fraudulent wizard. We know that magicians often traffic in astrology. Some can summon up demonic powers. We might say this guy was a religious con artist. He was apparently born a Hebrew, but he did not practice Judaism. And he's designated in verse 6 as a false prophet. Now, a prophet is one that conveys divine revelation from God. So his claim of divine revelation is bogus. It's unfounded. The words that Luke uses to describe this person assumes that the reader has an idea of what true revelation is. I mean, in order for one to be a false prophet, you got to know what a real prophet is. One has to acknowledge that there's the existence of truth if you acknowledge that something is indeed false, right? But I think we have to realize that these notions are not readily accepted today, especially in the religious world, where claims of having truth are seen as arrogant, bombastic. I mean, how can you claim to have religious truth? And yet, those who claim there is no religious truth often act like there's some kind of divine prerogative when they categorically condemn injustices, particularly by religious institutions. I mean, they sound as if they readily accept a moral order when they decry things like racism, rape. How can you condemn these things? I mean, are, is one really going to say that rape, racism, sexual harassment, these are just matters of opinion? Who does that? Hardly anybody does that. We recognize there is some moral order, right? My point is, is that if there is a moral order, does it also, in fact, apply to religious leaders? Well, of course it should. So perhaps the designation of a false prophet isn't quite as bombastic or arrogant as one might originally think. I mean, who is unwilling to acknowledge that there are religious wingnuts in the world? They exist. There are bogus religious people, but in order for them to be bogus, we have to recognize that there's some that are genuine. 
And I have yet to discover a more reliable source for determining the authenticity of a religious leader than that which is prescribed in the word of God. So I want us to look at some passages. We're gonna take some time, and what I wanna do is paint a clear picture of what the Bible has to say about false prophets. Now, I've purposely chosen just passages from the New Testament, not because the Old Testament doesn't apply, because I think it does. But there are many who think that, you know, this is not a, false prophets, it's not a New Testament thing. It's not a stuff for us to traffic in today or worry about. (laughs) I beg to differ with you. And so does the word of God. It's very plain. Now, this may be hard trafficking, and particularly the end passage I'm going to read out of 2 Peter. It's particularly long, but I think it's going to be worth it to acknowledge that God makes a clear case against false teachers. So bear with me. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. First of all, let's acknowledge Christians can be gullible, can be led astray. Number two, we can't be duped just because somebody has a good show on the stage of somebody being healed, particularly when it's on TV and you can't verify anything. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, false teaching is almost always accompanied by sexual immorality. When you move the target of truth, you also move the target of behavior. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So listen, if we are given the job of testing, what's that mean? That means we are responsible to make these distinctions. We're responsible not to succumb to bogus claims to false prophets and we're to acknowledge authentic ones. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Listen, false teachers are going to be nice. They'll be kind. They will tell people what they want to hear. But you can't be duped by that. You have to look through all that and see what is the fruit. Not just any fruit. Do they have good fruit? Do they have long-standing relationships? You know what I see about fakes? They cannot maintain relationships because people smell them out pretty quick. Uh, Do those who work with them speak well of them? 
Are they consistent in their defense of the truth? And then, 2 Peter chapter 2. I want us to notice again how sensuality accompanies false teaching. And just ask yourself the question whether God is serious about this stuff. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. There are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual desires of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. I bet you don't read this in your family devotions for the little children. <laughs> they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to what he is enslaved. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
sensuality, the judgment of God upon them. I don't know how that's always going to happen, but I think we can be certain that God will judge the false teachers, the false prophets. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. A proconsul is a governor that is appointed by a Roman senate to administer one of its provinces. And this proconsul is met up with Paul and Barnabas, and he's said to have a curiosity about the word of God, that he's an intelligent man. Let's make note that intelligence did not hinder this man, but it drew him to hear more about Christ. Many folks today see intelligence over here, faith over here. Intelligence over here, spiritual pursuits over here. They're at odds. Yet in our story, evidence, curiosity, inquiry are indispensable supports of a robust Christian faith. I want you to be encouraged. Our brains can take it. The human brain weighs three pounds. It's the size of a softball. And yet with it, it has the capacity to learn something new every second of every minute of every hour of every day for the next 300 million years. The human brain. God has created us with an unlimited potential for learning. We have plenty of opportunity to learn the words of life. Romans 15.4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Or Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Or in Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Listen, don't ever sell short a coherent thought life that affirms a biblical worldview. The influence can be great. A young Christian woman by the name of Ann Snyder spent her first three years in college trying to break into the world, or I should say after college, trying to break into the world of journalism and at the same time trying to serve Christ in her career. She then landed her dream job with David Brooks, a nationally known columnist for the New York Times. He hired Ann to be her research, be his research assistant. She acted as kind of a sounding board, giving him new ideas for stories, reading early drafts for columns. She's extremely intelligent, articulate, and none of this was a surprise but it was surprising that this young, professionally green, evangelical Christian 
was working slow, so closely with Brooks, who was an influential public voice, prominent journalist, thought leader, and an avowed non-Christian. But then fast forward to 2015, the same David Brooks released a critically acclaimed book, The Road to Character. And in the beginning of the book, he offers an acknowledgement page and he gives these words about his research assistant, Ann Snyder. He said, Ann Snyder was there when this book was born and walked with me through the first three years of its writing. This was first conceived as a book about cognition and decision-making. Under Ann's influence, it became a book about morality and inner life. She led dozens of discussions about the material, assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge, challenged the superficiality of my thinking in memo after memo, and transformed the project. I have certainly stolen many of her ideas and admire the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life. If there are any important points in this book, they probably come from Anne, end quote. Of course, there's a story behind that acknowledgement. Her vibrant faith, her God-given brilliance, uncompromising work ethic, extensive reading list, all of this influenced Mr. Brooks in a profound way relevant way. Her faithful presence, her, her biblical worldview, her thoughtfulness made a difference. It made Christianity just a little more relevant to one individual who just happened to be a best-selling author and columnist for the New York Times. But Elimus, the ma magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Eliamus, or Bar-Jesus, opposed Paul and Barnabas before the proconsul. He was trying to block the influence of the gospel. He distorted and perverted the good news. He tried to pass off to the governor as something that was from God when it was bogus, it was fake. But Paul could tell the difference between a true prophet and a fake one. Now, we often think that Paul was his post-conversion name. Paul was his Roman name. Saul was his Jewish name. And now that Paul is dealing mainly with Gentiles, he's called Paul the rest of the way through Acts. But notice in our passage, it says that Paul was filled with the Spirit and looked intently at the man. First, let's acknowledge that spiritual discernment is not from a human origin. It's God-given. One has to fall under the authority of the Word of God, have a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, that's Paul, to make these distinctions between what's real and what's not in the spiritual world. And it says that Paul looked intently. The, the word actually means that he, he fixed his gaze. He was staring at him. And certainly it shows that Paul was not afraid to confront this individual. Paul was not tolerating what Elimus was giving. He was not tolerant of deception. He was not tolerant of a false gospel. He was not tolerant of twisting the word of God. 
And I know it's not popular to draw a line in the sand when it comes to religious truth. But one is sailing blind in a sea full of religious claims unless they have a steady compass to guide them, and that's the word of God. Verse 10 says, and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of unrighteousness. Apparently, Paul was wavering on what he thought of the man. (laughs) Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. In a bit of irony, this guy was known as the son of Jesus, and Paul says, you are the son of the devil. Wow. He was, in fact, an enemy of God because he opposed the son of God. He opposed the word of God. He was an enemy of all righteousness. Imagine a person claiming to speak for God, but he's an enemy of God. We cannot be so gullible or naive to think that this does not go on today. Just because they read a verse, just because they say they had a revelation from God does not make it so. Religious leaders and institutions can be corrupt. Whether it's with sexual behavior, love of power and politics, avarice, many church people try to paint God talk over unrighteousness. And God is not fooled. And I think God is not wanting us to be fooled either. Sergius Paulus at this point was not aware of the deception he was under. And so Paul was was presenting the gospel to the proconsul. And Elimus comes along, he tries to discredit it. If ever there was a need to confront, it's now, it's here, it's this, with the twisting of the gospel. This sorcerer is not found to just lie a time or two. It says he's full of deceit. Everything he does is self-serving. There's nothing a lie must can do that is not connected to his pride, his own agenda, even though he says something different. And, and then Paul says he's full of villainy. You know what that means? It means to be dishonest without any hesitation. There is no roadblock, no speed bump. He continues to lie and lie some more. He has no scruples. And he was deceiving Sergius Paulus with these false claims while perverting the straight path to the Lord, perverting the gospel, perverting the nature and the work of Christ. Now, lest we try to put some flowery language over this, verse 11 says, the hand of God was on him. And that hand was judgment. Judgment. In this case, he was blind. And listen, I think that there's mercy shown here. Mercy in this judgment. You say, how so? Because we've seen in prior cases, God would just strike people dead, right? There's still mercy that God doesn't do that. 
He blinds the man and it says temporarily, it seems as if he's giving him an, a chance somehow, some way for repentance. I mean, if there's still breath, there's still time for repentance. God showed mercy to the man by not striking him dead on the spot. So given this passage, and given what we read in 2 Peter, I see no reason to believe that God cannot judge in real time today. False prophets, false teachers. Those who pervert the gospel, those who deny the word of God, those who take away from the work and the person of Christ, clearly, false teaching, false prophecy. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So our story ends on an up note, the conversion of the proconsul. Despite the deception that was going on, somehow the gospel shone through like a shaft of light that he could see the truth of who Christ is and what he did. And the grace of God overcame that obstacle. Powered by the truth, filled with the Holy Spirit, God used Paul to deliver the gospel message and it penetrated this heart of Sergius Paulus. And after Limus was, was blinded, our passage tells us that alongside that and the, the truth of the gospel, the teaching of the Lord brought him to faith. Not just a miracle. The truth of the Lord brought him to faith. Our primary tool to turn any heart has to be the truth of the word of God. There's an unusual condition called developmental topographical disorientation, DTD. It means a person can't form a mental map or image of their surroundings. Unlike most people, they have no internal compass. These people can take their dog for a walk, go a block or two from their house, and they get lost. One woman who struggles with DTD said, those of us struggling with this disorder are often left with feelings of anxiety, depression, isolation, and self-doubt. It's a good metaphor for people trying to find their way through all of the religious claims that are out there. If you don't have the word of God, if you do not have Christ, you cannot find your way. We read of a man here, one who was hungry for the truth and he found peace. Another denied the truth and he was wrecked. We have a clear choice before us. And we have a clear responsibility in cutting through all the claims that are out there and seeing clearly the truth that God has given us and the revelation of his son and the revelation of the word of God. Let's pray.